Radio. Love Talk Radio. Who existed so long ago? 
Sure. I guess, you know, I've always been interested in history, and I grew up um, in New Haven, Connecticut, and which is a predominantly African-American city, and I went to an inter- interracial high school, you know, in the 1970s. So I learned that I could combine my interest in uh, race in America with my interest in history by, by tracing this, this history of integration back into the 19th century. And uh, in graduate school, uh, I studied uh, American women's history, and I learned about more about Lucretia Mott and became very interested in her in particular when I worked on um, the first published volume of her letters, um, the selected letters of Lucretia, Lucretia Coffin Mott in uh, 2002, and there hadn't been a biography of Lucretia Mott since 1980. And she's such an important figure, and to not have a biography for so long, I just felt compelled that this person who was so integral to social change in 19th century America had to have a biography. Who would you compare so, to Lucretia today? Who would I compare Lucretia to today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um well, I just I just watched the documentary on HBO on Gloria Steinem, and I would say she's somewhat similar uh, to um, Lucretia Mott, or potentially someone like Betty Friedan. People who saw civil rights, African American civil rights, as an essential movement, and and in turn saw it as a way to promote the rights of all Americans, African Americans, women, uh, and others. So Lucretia Mott related all sorts of different social movements in her own thought. She didn't believe that they could be separated, that they were all part of the same universal drive for liberty and equality. Now, do you think Lucretia's uh, thoughts and interests stem from home background or was it her religion or you know you know where did her activism come from part of it certainly her religion she was born into the society of friends uh, more commonly called the quakers uh she came from a quaker family on the island of nantucket and the quakers very early on had a stated commitment to human equality um, especially for um, sexual equality in the very beginning. But by the end of the 18th century, the Society of Friends had become one of the first religions to state that slavery was sinful and that you could not be a Quaker and own slaves or have any close dealings with slavery. So she certainly was born into this tradition of sexual and racial equality. But even in the 19th century, she viewed the Quaker testimony against slavery as incomplete, that, that that it wasn't enough for Quakers to say that slavery was wrong. Everyone had to, to realize that slavery was wrong, and it had to end immediately. So she was willing to go beyond her own religious tradition to say, this is unacceptable in American society. Oh, out of that your research... Everyone is equal. Okay, from your research, what was one of the events or acts that she uh, performed that really put her at risk and was one of the first um, deeds that she did that put her on the mark as 
far as history is concerned? Well, she attended the founding meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1833, and I think um, Philadelphia, where she was based for most of her adult life, was um, a center of not only anti-slavery activism, but also anti-abolition activism. You know, so there were there were um, multiple uh, race riots in Philadelphia in the early 1830s, and uh, probably one of the most famous instances is in 1838, the burning of Pennsylvania Hall, which abolitionists had raised funds to open this this hall where anyone could come and speak because most meeting places were closed to abolitionists. And the first week that it was open, an anti-abolition mob, probably of about 15,000 people strong, burned it to the ground while... Um, you know, they started throwing stones, uh, threatening the building with people inside, including Lucretia Mott. And once once the abolitionists had exited, they um, turned the gas on and, and, and burned the building down. And one of the things that upset them so much, the anti-abolitionist rioters, about Pennsylvania Hall was the fact that African Americans and whites were meeting there together equally. So to 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 raise the the ire of the mob, uh, people were sped, spreading rumors around Philadelphia that blacks and whites were sitting together, that blacks and whites in the building had intermarried. Right? So they were they were causing all these scandals, and when the mob was done with Pennsylvania Hall, they tried to find Mott's house, and even though Mott knew that they were heading in the direction of her house, she would not leave. Uh, and so that, wow. I think, is probably one of the first instances where she has a direct confrontation with a, mo- with a mob. I mean, remember, she's just left Pennsylvania Hall. She had to walk through the mob to get out, and then, you know, she's she's not willing to leave her home. And how old was so, she about when this incident occurred? She would have been about uh, in her 40s, I guess, mid-40s. Was she married in, with so, children at the time? She was. She uh, married quite young. She was born in 1793, I should uh, say, at the beginning. And she got married in 1811 uh, to James Mott, her husband. And they had six children, five of whom lived to adulthood. And her la- she gave birth to her last child in 1828. So 1838, you know, she's her children are, um, you know, older or grown up at that point, and she is able to pursue her anti-slavery career, which which really is the driving passion of her life is anti-slavery. Now, Coffin, that's a very important name in uh, the abolitionist movement. Can you explain to our audience why that name is so important? Her the name, name Coffin? Yeah, her yes, because, well, one of the leaders of the Underground Railroad um, in the Midwest is Levi Coffin, and he wrote a history of the Underground Railroad, um, just as William Still wrote a history of the Underground Railroad. And Levi Coffin is a cousin of Mott. So she was born, uh, her maiden name is Lucretia Coffin, um, and uh, in Nantucket she was related to basically all Quakers who originated in, in Nantucket named Coffin, and Levi Coffin was one of her cousins. Do you think he influenced her? 
And anyway, you know, it seems like these these two individuals are very important in history. Did they have any contact, or is this a coincidence? Yeah, I guess I would say her her view of him is probably that he's a little bit more conservative than she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he Levi Coffin, his first and foremost interest was the Underground Railroad. And Lucretia Mott, because she lived in Philadelphia, of course, which is quite near Delaware, which is a slave state, and Maryland um, also, which is a slave state, Philadelphia is really in many ways on the front lines of the Underground Railroad. And she had to uh, um, participate in the Underground Railroad because of that, but she also was much more radical than Levi Coffin in terms of other things she did towards the abolition of slavery. You know, she spoke all over the country, including to slaveholders, about the evils of slavery. And so she was willing to confront hostile audiences uh, because she felt that slavery was so wrong. So for her, helping fugitive slaves was not enough. You know, you, you really, some, an individual really had to do everything in their power to end slavery. Now, when you say everything in their power, when I did my research, it seemed like history was definitely repeating itself as far as the civil, the, um, the civil acts of disobedience. Could you explain some of the similarities that Lucretia and the anti-slavery movement um, were engaged in uh, compared to what Martin Luther King did during the civil rights era, like the boycotts and things of that nature? Sure. Uh, Yeah, so one thing that that Lucretia Mott was very passionate about was that she believed that being opposed to slavery meant that you could not support the institution in any way. And slavery, of course, was ingrained in all aspects of American life. You couldn't get away from it, even if you were in the North. If If you bought a cotton dress at a store, you were participating in the economy of slavery. If you ate a cake made with sugar, you're participating in the economy of slavery. So Mott was very passionate about the fact that that you had to cut all ties to slavery. And so she was at the forefront of a a movement known as uh, the Free Produce Movement, which called for a boycott of slave-produced goods. And she was quite committed to this movement, um, and her allies... She was a member of an organization called the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, which was an integrated organization um, founded in 1833 that didn't close its doors until 1870 after the passage of the 15th Amendment. So it had a very long life. And this organization also shared Mott's commitment to boycotting uh, slave-produced goods. Uh, And they said their statement on it was, it's a matter of consistency. Right. We have to be clean of this institution to speak against it. I think that's important because I'm, I was born and raised in Patterson, New Jersey, which is known as Silk City, and it was founded uh, by yeah. Alexander Hamilton. And I've uh, researched some facts that you know that Silk was uh, promoted as a way to as a way to um, deny the cotton industry from. Um, yeah. From yeah, exactly. You know, lost the words, but I, I'm I'm really impressed by um everything you're you're really on point, and you know this is really a great interview. And I want to touch on 
some people that we do know more about, and I'm, I'm upset that a lot of people don't know much about Lucretia. Well, let's talk about John Brown and her relationship sure. with John Brown. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, so uh, John Brown, of course, launched the famous raid on Harper's Ferry, uh, which was one uh, which was a violent assault on the institution. And Lucretia Mott, because she was a Quaker, also was a pacifist. So she opposed the use of violence. She was willing to put herself physically in the way of violence, but she was not willing to use violence herself. And so her relationship with John Brown is very interesting. She and the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, after John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, issue a statement, basically, calling him a martyr, saying that they understand why he felt provoked uh, to this point, but also disagreeing with his method. And uh, I would say uh, Lucretia Mott also hosted his wife, Mary Ann Brown, when she traveled down to Virginia to see him before his death. So she also had very close contact with the family and was part of the larger support network offered to John Brown. So even though she disagreed with his methods, she hailed him as a martyr. And one of the one of her perspectives on violence, and this this is something that she shared with other pacifists, is she blamed violence on slavery. She saw slavery as a fundamentally violent institution and that the violence of slavery provoked and led to this other violence. So she had the same, a similar response to, say, Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831. So she didn't agree with John Brown's methods, but she, but she sympathized with his motive. Do you think they were content with the progress that the nonviolent movement was making as far as anti-slavery, as far as, you know, um, they forced John Brown to do what he had to do, but on the flip side, they had to write a law, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And I think that's evidence that what Lucretia Mott was doing was really working, that they had to stoop that low to pass that act. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point because abolitionists, you know, had been really since the since the 1820s with David Walker's appeal, black and white abolitionists had been agitating and causing, you know, backlash and causing outrage in the nation's newspapers and on the nation's street because they were speaking against slavery. And Mott really believed that that abolitionists were succeeding in changing people's minds, that it was a slow process but it was succeeding, and she was a very optimistic individual about this process of changing minds. So there's uh, there's one point, since you mentioned the Fugitive Slave Act, when uh, you know Harriet Beecher Stowe publishes her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, sort of in response to the Fugitive Slave Act and to to raise awareness about the the evils really of the act. And and Mott says. Harriet Beecher Stowe could not have written that novel if it hadn't been for the decades of, of abolitionist agitation before that, right? They had sort of laid the groundwork for her for her novel, in, in essence. So, but I think other abolitionists were frustrated by the slow pace of, of 
changing people's minds. And so some abolitionists like John Brown were willing to seek out other methods to, to end slavery. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Charles Sumner. Uh, okay. Are you familiar with him at all? Yeah, I sure am. All right, let's go. Yeah, so uh, so Charles Sumner um, is an anti-slavery politician from Boston, and in uh, 1856 he gives a speech called The Crime Against Kansas. And uh, this so outrages some of his southern colleagues that uh, Preston Brooks, a southern congressman, comes to the to the floor of Congress and and beats him unconscious essentially. And, and Sumner doesn't return to Congress for for years because his recovery is so long after this after this brutal beating. And Vermont and other abolitionists, this is just another example of slaveholders being on the defensive, right? That as you implied earlier with the Fugitive Slave Act, they've put them on the defensive and they're reacting in ever more outrageous ways. And really the caning of Sumner is one of the major turning points uh, in addition to John Brown's uh, raid four years later that, that changes the tide of public opinion in the North firmly, much more firmly against slavery. Wow. Um, now let's talk about your book and the process that you went through and, um, you know, some exciting points in your book that you like to share. Sure. Uh, so I've been working on Lucretia Mott for really since 1999 when I when I originally worked on the, the selected letters of Lucretia Coffin Mott with Beverly Wilson Palmer. And... Uh, since then, most of Mott's personal papers are at uh, the Friends Historical Library at Swarthmore College. And if people are interested, um, they can go to the Friends Historical Library's website, and there's there's lots of great images of Mott on their website. And uh, so m most of my research was done there, but I also did a lot of research in Philadelphia um, at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and the, and the Library Company. And I think one of the things that that um, I think is very exciting about Lucretia Mott is that she's not only an abolitionist, but she's also, and again, this is in the early 19th century, a committed racial egalitarian. She's one of the reasons that the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society is so important to her is because it is an integrated body, and she and the other members constantly think about racial prejudice and try to work against racial prejudice. So in their constitution, it says that slavery and racial prejudice are contrary to the laws of God and to the principles set out in the Declaration of Independence. So they, they are constantly looking inward at themselves to look for manifestations of racial prejudice and to try and struggle against them. Okay. So um, I think that's very important about Lucretia Mott. I think um, a lot of her activism, because a lot of the history of anti-slavery is focused on Boston, where William Lloyd Garrison was based, or uh, New York City, uh, a lot of the, the intensity of anti-slavery activism in Philadelphia 
uh, was overlooked. Um, and I know that you're very interested in um, William Still, and so I would I would say that Lucretia Mott and William Still would have had close associations because both would have been involved in the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, and particularly um, uh, she would have had a relationship with the Vigilance Committee. Correct. So and that when she's featured in his book, there's a picture of her. Yes, exactly. So yes, he, exactly. He, he so he. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, he says, you know, this book wouldn't be complete without a discussion of Lucretia Mott. And he calls her, and, and I actually like this line very much, he calls her an enfranchised spirit, right, so that even though women do not have the right to vote, she doesn't need the right to vote. She's basically enfranchised herself, so I like that very much. But they both participated in um, uh, the escape of Jane Johnson, and particularly Mott is integral when, when Jane Johnson comes back to uh, testify on behalf of Passmore Williamson. Could you slow down right uh, there? That's a very exciting sure. story. Could you start from the beginning? with Who is Jane Johnson? So Jane Johnson is a slave belonging to a man named John Wheeler, who was the United States minister to Nicaragua. And... Wheeler and uh, Jane Johnson were stopping in Philadelphia on their way, I believe, to Nicaragua. And uh, Passmore Williamson, who was a Quaker, and William Still, who was an African-American activist, uh, went up to Jane Johnson when the ship was in port and said, you know, you're free under the laws of Pennsylvania. Uh, Let's go. And Jane Johnson says okay, and she, she leaves, and, and it's actually a physical struggle because John Wheeler attempts to grab her, but Still and Williamson um, get her off the ship, and Still uh, gets her away from Philadelphia, but Passmore Williamson is, sort of, is arrested um, uh, with a writ of habeas corpus. The court asks him to produce Jane Johnson. He says, I don't know where she is, and eventually he's, he's brought to trial, and one of the, the sticking points is in the trial is, was Jane Johnson going to escape anyway? Uh, and, you know, or did Passmore Williamson instigate this? You know, did he essentially steal her from John Wheeler? And so Jane Johnson comes back to testify that, in fact, she left of her own free will and she was happy to go. <laughs> and so Surprise. She, yeah, right. <laughs> So so when she enters court, though, no one sees her enter the court. She's wearing a veil, and she's surrounded by Lucretia Mott and other women from the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And after her testimony, she and Lucretia Mott and um, James Miller McKim, who was another abolitionist who worked closely with William Still, get her out of the courtroom, load her into this carriage, which is um, there's armed guards all around the carriage. They go to Lucretia's Lucretia Mott's house. She cuts through Lucretia Mott's house. Lucretia gives her some food, and Jane Johnson gets into another carriage and escapes. So the the people who had been following the original carriages had been thrown off. So, so Mott was sort of integral in that story as well. Yes, I'm waiting to see the movie of Jane Johnson. I really enjoyed that. Would be a good movie. That would be a very good movie. Did Lucretia ever? Um, was she ever arrested or close to being arrested? She was not close to being arrested. And I think this is one of the 
um, you know, the upsides of fame, I guess I'd say, that she had become, she was so well-known that people really couldn't act, um, take those actions against her. And I would also say that her race as a white person and as particularly as a white woman offered her some protection uh, that um, I guess the, the the forces of law and order were certainly willing to um, uh, throw 90 seconds. white men and Af- African-American women in jail, but they were slightly more um, delicate in their behavior around white women. So she had that to protect her. Excellent. To a certain extent. I can't believe that the show is almost over. We're down to our last minute. Um, would you be so kind to give us your contact information? I know you're – did you do a talk at Peterborough? 60 seconds. Would you like to talk about Peterborough and how someone could purchase your book and all that good sure. information? Well, you can purchase my book um, on Amazon.com. Just search for Carol Faulkner for Lucretia Mott's Heresy, and it should come up. And um, I also spoke at the National Abolition Hall of Fame today, and they do have copies of my book also there in Peterborough um, for those who are uh, interested in in going to see the National uh, Abolition Hall of Fame or the Garrett Smith Estate. And she is uh, one of the honorees, right? She is. She was, uh, I believe, she was one of the first group inducted into the Hall of Fame. And um, this year the Hall of Fame is inducting uh, Abby Kelly Foster, Jermaine Logan, who's also a very significant figure on the Underground Railroad, Ten seconds. and um, uh, a local man. And um, any more speaking engagements or book signings coming up? I'll be Soon. speaking in Philadelphia uh, at the end or at the beginning of November, uh, November fourth at Swarthmore College, and um, November fifth at the Friends Historical Association. Uh, so, um, but I'm happy to speak anywhere. If anyone wants me to come speak, I'm happy to talk about Lucretia Mott. Wonderful. Thank you, Professor, for uh, joining us tonight. I enjoyed this conversation immensely, and I hope to have you back on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. All right. Good night.